All right. All right. Make yourselves comfortable in your plastic chair. It's good to have you. I think Destin, Florida has probably got a population of 7 million people today. Happy spring break. I think we could probably have a satellite campus there today if we wanted one. So be praying for all the people traveling this week. Um, hey, before we get started, there is someone I'd love to introduce to you today, not to bring her up on stage, but I'd love to point out this young woman sitting right here. This is Shay Payne. You're going to want to meet her after the service. She was the very, very first person that came on staff with me and Paula whenever we did Texas Tech at Campus Ministry back in 1999, I think. Yeah, way back in the day. So she's very close to family for us, and she's here visiting. She's been on Mercy Ship for quite a while, and she's just kind of laying low and relaxing here. Um, so it's good to see you, Shay. You all want to get to meet her. Hey, if you have your Bible, turn to John 18. Um, I know we have a lot of people missing, but we are still going to cruise through our series on the book of John um, called Hero. have really, really enjoyed this series, and today we get to look to see how we react when truth comes our way, especially when it confronts us, particularly when it corrects us. Um, very, very helpful book. So look at John 18. I'm actually going to read with you, and then I'm going to pause here and there, because there is one thing I'd like to pay attention to more than any other. This is a passage that could be taught out over months probably, but there's one specific thing I would like to look for. So in the 28th verse, this is what the word of the Lord is for you and me today. It's going to help us see Jesus much more clearly. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. All that means, by the way, is they were not allowed to be in the house of a Gentile or to eat a meal with a Gentile or to be in the presence of one like that, um, or else they would be impure. And it was right on the doorstep of Passover, so they stayed outside. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Okay, pause. That is Pilate's first attempt to offload this problem called Jesus, this controversy called Jesus. That's attempt number one, right? The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 
but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Hey, pause. That is his second attempt to offload and shelf this problem called Jesus, right? Second attempt. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. The Barabbas actually shows up in the other three gospels, the synoptics as well, and he's considered a bandit, a murderer, and a thief, right? Verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is his third attempt to get rid of Jesus. So, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This is the fourth attempt. He's trying to get rid of this controversial Jesus. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, ought to die, or one ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Now, when Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. Now, listen, he's already afraid because he's being put between a rock and a hard place, right? So he doesn't like what's on the line right here. But back then in pagan mythology, Jesus was being accused of, in Pilate's mind, as being a demigod or half god, half man, right? So consider like Hercules. That's the most, I guess, recognizable one that we have today. And if you, in pagan mythology, were to cross or wrong a demigod, that brings an incredible misfortune to you. So now he's even more afraid than he was. Verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you, have, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Uh, some say that the one who delivered him over would be Judas. That could be true. The, the more likely scenario is that it is Caiaphas, the high priest, because he is the one that was endued with God's uh, role of leading the people of Israel and leading God's nation, and he is the one that handed him over. He had more responsibility, right? Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. There it is, the fifth time we hear of Pilate trying to get rid of Jesus and get him off his plate. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over them to be crucified. Okay, this passage is largely about truth arriving and people really not doing a great job of handling truth. 
And that's basically what Jesus is saying. My role for being here, he says, is to point out the truth. The truth is realistically God's gospel for mankind through him, the person of Jesus. So he came to declare the truth, to enact the truth with his life. And then he says, and those who believe in the truth love me. They listen to my voice. Handling truth, you think, would be easy, but it's not. Truth is a bit slippery, even today. Consider the, I don't know, maybe two dozen nations that censor their media, right? Um, Maybe it's state-sponsored media. That means that they control the facts. And if you control the facts, you control the truth. We see this in Burma. We see it in North Korea. We see it all over. We see it in Syria. I mean, in Iran right now and in China, there's no Facebook. No Facebook. That's hard for us to imagine here. Why do you think they don't have any Facebook? Because they don't want the opposition and they don't want activism leaking out. They're going to clamp down on what people know, right? So, hey, no problems here. Your leaders are great. You're in a great country. Stick it to the West. You know, they're going to control everything and what all of their people hear. I'd say even in the United States right now, I would say we have a crisis in apprehending what is truth. And I think that's largely because we get our news from the internet, and that's a wide pasture now, is it not? I mean, you can get your news from all over. I was just reading this morning how I think this year the internet turns 29 years old. And it was an interview of the guy that basically wrote the blueprint for the internet, and he said that this last year he's become more afraid for the future of the internet than all 28 years beforehand. Number one reason, fake news. I mean, we have to have discernment on whether what we are reading is true or whether it's fiction. Because now you have truth, but you have alternative truth. You have facts, but you have alternative facts, multiple truths, situational truths. Turns out it's not so black and white, it's quite elusive, it's quite slippery, right? The reason this is important is because if you control the facts, you control the truth, and if you control the truth, you build the storyline. And if you build the storyline, you control people's hearts. This is what we saw in Nazi Germany with what we now call the propaganda machine. They controlled the facts. They controlled what people knew. Therefore, they defined what was true. Therefore, they built the storyline. They rendered out the, the narrative that they wanted, and they captured everybody's hearts, right? And we hate this on a national level. We hate it. We hate it when we think it's happening to us. We hate it when we hear about it happening to other nations, but we hate it even more when it happens to us personally. How do you feel whenever you're trying to make a decision and people are holding back the truth from you, right? I mean, when you're making a big decision, even just getting 90% of the truth is not good enough. You want all of the truth. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you've had to make a decision and then later on, more facts start to drip in that change the narrative a little bit? Doesn't it come out of our mouth, hey, you were holding some of that back. I mean, I needed all the facts. I needed every shred of proof of what was true so that I could make a good decision, and you held it back. We don't like that. It makes us feel controlled, manipulated, steered, makes us feel at risk. We want the truth no matter what, even if it's ugly. Because for us to have the truth means we can progress, we could heal, we could be free. That's why if you look above nine out of 10 libraries today, you will see, and the truth will set you free with a, with a cute little Bible, you know, 
little citation there, which is totally ripped out of context. I mean, that means more the gospel, what we're talking about today, than it does reading a bunch of library books and becoming smarter. But that's the way society sees it, right? If you want to be free, you have to learn a lot. And that knowledge will set you free. That's what our culture says. Knowing the truth and facts is salvation. But Jesus says, knowing a king is salvation, right? This is why WikiLeaks has become so popular as of lately, because they're the ones sticking it to the man and giving us all the information. Here's the truth, the truth that they won't tell you, all of the truth and nothing but the truth in its rawest form, its most darkest form. And we say, yeah, we applaud, right? But we don't really want all the truth. Not really. Like Colonel Jessup says in that movie, I can't, A Few Good Men, he says, you can't handle the truth. Because the truth isn't just slippery, it's abrasive, all at the same time. Turn around and point the truth machine at you, it's not so comfortable. It hurts. It indicts. It exposes. It reveals. It shows us how gross we could be. It shows us how filthy we can think. It can really point out our actions and, and show that they're not just actions, they could be sins. And that's really tough for us. So we work really hard at sculpting our own narratives so that we like what we see in the mirror and we can sleep at night. So we build exception clauses, situational truth, alternative facts just for us. We could do the same thing that North Korea does. We just do it on a personal level. This is why you'll see the occasional young person that gets caught up in some heinous crime, like a hate crime or a terrorist act of some kind, or maybe they murdered a bunch of people, you always have the obligatory mom say, but he's a great kid. He's a great kid. That's all truth right there. That's alternative truth. Is he a great kid? He might take care of mama okay, but he also shot a bomb off in a subway or whatever. I mean, he's not really a good kid, but she believes and is crafting an alternative narrative, a different narrative where she has facts and truth that she believes that makes her feel like I'm not such a bad mom, he's a good kid, this isn't who he is. That's really what we see when we see that. You see, we want our narrative to show that we're innocent, maybe misunderstood, maybe mistaken, but definitely not guilty or filthy or selfish. But when truth comes, it's not always welcome, is it? I mean, we applaud, but not, not all the time. I don't. Sometimes the abrasive truth, it just feels like it needs to be massaged a little bit, maybe smoothed out, right? Rendered into a different alternative, true, but a little bit more alternatively true. And listen, this isn't new, and it's not internet-driven. I mean, alternative truth is, a, is about as cutting edge as the passage that we're looking at right now. Because Jesus says, I've come to this broken place to point out the gospel for all mankind and those who hear it love me and listen. And then Pilate looks at him with this face and says, truth, hmm, whatever that means. That's how new this is. So if you have eyes to see it, John tells us today what is the truth. And the truth is, is we are worse than we thought we were, but we are more loved than we could ever imagine. If you have eyes to see it, we're gonna, we're gonna pick that out here in just a minute, but that's not really the, the narrative that we'd like to hear. It's not the narrative that we particularly want. The storyline we want is we're actually quite lovely. We're lovely people that pretty much deserve a spot at the table. I mean, certainly we're not living an A++ life. We all know that. 
It floats a little bit between B minus and C plus, but it is better than Jerry Springer, likely better than my neighbors. I mean, come on now. And when I do fail, it's not really my fault. I was kind of put into that position and God knows my heart. And when I do well, I had a little bit of a hand in that. That's the storyline we want. That's the narrative that we would prefer. You can see this most whenever people are shown their failures and their faults, right? Hey, that's not a sin. Or hey, it's not as bad as it looks. You don't understand. There's more to the story, right? Besides, it's not my fault. I only did that because they did that. I only did that because I was forced into that position. That is us crafting a better narrative. That's us going all North Korea, trying to convince ourselves and those around us that everything is good, nothing to see, move on by. So when I read this passage over and over and over again, I see myself represented in this setting by some major players. Maybe you can too. I'd like to take a look, right? Because you have Pilate. It's our first time to see Pilate in this whole 40-something week excursion through the book of John. This is our first time to be introduced to Pilate. Pilate is a guy who is riding his third strike, if you know your history. Complaints had already traveled all the way up to Rome, not doing so good. He needs to keep everything very quiet. He's looking for the canoe not to be tipped. But Jesus, he looks a whole lot like a canoe tipper, doesn't he? So he comes and makes things a bit more complicated for him. All he wants to do, all Pilate wants to do is get through the day, achieve his task list. And listen, every day that's not a volatile day is a good day. We saw no less than five times him say, hey, let's make this not my problem, this Jesus thing. You guys deal with it. And then a bunch of jibber jabber. And then again, maybe you guys deal with this. And then a bunch of jibber jabber. Hey, listen, not my problem. You guys should deal with this over and over and over again. And like all leadership, if you've ever been in leadership, you'll find very often being put between a rock and a hard place as he is here and he chooses the safe route. The safe route. And then to cover up his cowardice, he acts as if truth is now all of a sudden relative and ambiguous. Oh, I'm not ignoring truth. I just don't know that it's really entrenched in granite. I think it's more fluid, more situational. What is truth all of a sudden? It's the card he's playing right now. You know, it's easy for me to read this passage and have a big opinion on his leadership. I just think in my mind when I read it, you are being such a bonehead. You're in charge. Grow a backbone, pilot. Tell the nerds to go back to their nerdery. Threaten them that if they come chatting it up like this again, that you're going to put them in jail. You tell them what's up. They're not governors. You're the governor. That's the way it works. And then you invite Jesus to dinner that night because you know you're dying to ask him some questions. You know there's a conversation you'd love to have. But right when I judge him in my heart, I realize how great truth is until it tips my canoe. Truth is not so much fun anymore. Where it's forcing me to make incredibly hard decisions that will cost me. I too can offload hard decisions. Try to make it somebody else's problem. I can do that. Maybe you can. Maybe render out an alternative truth. Maybe, maybe try to think in your mind that truth is maybe a bit shiftier than I originally thought. Maybe that was true, but in this situation, something totally different is true, and that helps me and keeps me safe. I immediately think of people that I've talked to in the past 20 years of ministry that I talked to about living 
with somebody that they're not married with or having a relationship with someone that they're not married with. And you hear the same predictable things. We are married in God's eyes. You don't understand. I didn't have a place to stay. She didn't have a place to stay. This is the way it worked out. We're staying in different rooms. It's, it doesn't matter what country, what state, what church. It doesn't matter anything. I always hear the same things. What is going on? Alternative narrative. These are the new facts. These are the truths, the ones that you don't understand. But God knows my heart, and I was in this position against my will. You hear the same thing with bad stewardship. Luke, I'd love to give more time. I'd love to lead and serve. I would love to do the things that time requires, but I just don't have any. But God knows my heart. But the truth is, Luke, I just I can't be sacrificial with what I don't have. I'd love to write checks. I'd love to give to mission or give to the disenfranchised or be faithful to the church, but God knows I don't have any money. Alternative facts, alternative truth, different narrative, one that they can sleep with. Addiction, I'm not really addicted. It's serving me, I'm not serving it, and God knows how hard my life is right now, and God knows that I don't want to do this, right? Unforgiveness, God knows what they did to me, he knows how hard this is, and he is okay with me not just forgiving them, because he was there, he saw what happened. Do you see how quick that this could be us? How quick we could find ourselves in Pilate's shoes and say, truth, <laughs> what is truth? Truth is what serves me. Depends on the situation. And that's when I look like North Korea. Listen, some of you this morning, you have so much of, the, of a, just a dependence on some sort of sin that even right now you're trying to convince yourself I'm not talking to you. Right now you're doing that. You've tried to build an alternative truth and yet like Pilate, the decision keeps coming to you, doesn't it? It keeps coming back up to the top. You can't get rid of it. Keep trying to offload it, it keeps coming back. You know, there's another player in this. It's actually multiple people, but it's the religious professionals, the Pharisees, the high priests, the whole lot of them. These were performance artists at their best, probably the best the world had ever seen. I love, I don't know if you're like me in this. Some of you probably, most of you probably are not, but I will watch just about anything if it's the best in the world doing it, right? So the Winter Olympics come, I'm all about that curling, you know, with the brooms and the big weight. It's such a boring, stupid sport in my mind. I mean, it's, it's curling, come on, you know? None of you even cared about it until you saw it like a few years ago. But it's the best in the world doing it. The best cupcake makers in the world, I'm all about it, I'm watching. Best sandcastle builders in the world, are they the best? Yes, they are, I'm all about it, let's turn it on, you know? There's something about watching the best in the world do something. The Pharisees were the best in the world at carrying themselves a certain way, behaving a certain way, having rules about how to make rules, about how you would follow more rules, about having meetings on how to have meetings, about being clean and pressed and pristine before all people. They were the best in the world. And then Jesus comes along telling them their best is not good enough. <laughs> no one likes to hear that. No one likes to do something and say, woo, that's my best, and have someone come along and say, meh, not really good enough. I mean, it's okay. And that's what's happening. They, they bleed for this alternative truth. They live for it, and Jesus says, your best is not good enough. He's roaming through the countryside with his merry band of men and synagogues and marketplaces, and he's talking about how the law is insufficient to save people. Behavior is insufficient to save people, and they lost their stuff. 
Now they're crying out that God's not even king anymore. Now Caesar is king. Anything it takes to get Jesus hung up. Not only does that bother them, but now Jesus is saying this thing where basic sinners and lepers and guys with one leg and people who are in jail and people who don't have a job and freeloaders, now they are experiencing the same grace of God that they are. So now the value of their behavior has become a zero. Now that they're not going to live for. Think about that. You see, when I look at them, and I see how they respond, just as I look at how Pilate responds, I see another mirror, because truth is fantastic until it measures me and tells me that I'm a little worse than I thought I was, and my best is not sufficient, right? Because when truth comes to me and tells me that my best does not get me more than somebody who's not even trying, I lose my stuff. You mean to tell me that I'm reading my Bible every day, I show up to church every time the door is open, I give a minimum of X amount of dollars to the kingdom, I do this and that, and I tell everyone about Jesus, and I think clear thoughts, and I have a filter on my computer, and I go through the long list of everything that I do perfectly and the things I produce, and I'm saying I get as much grace as this guy who doesn't do anything? He doesn't show up? He doesn't care? I don't even think he loves you. I don't even know if that guy's ever prayed. But he's a Christian, and you're telling me that you love him as much as you love me? I don't know if I'm about that. I don't know if I'm about that at all. But that's what truth was saying. Grace, God's favor to you despite your best, grace was saying now the performance is nullified. And you thought that would be freeing to them at the time. I'm trying to imagine being like an apprentice or uh, an intern Pharisee, whatever that looked like. I'm sure they didn't have them, but if they did, I'm trying to imagine coming up in the ranks and hearing Jesus' teaching and thinking, wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me I don't have to wear this stuff anymore? And I don't have to show up and clock in like all these guys in front of me? And sacrifices are about to be done? Wait, 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 wait. If I were to repeat it, I would have, I would have thought that a big sense of freedom would have come to him. Like they would have raced to just throw all that stuff in the middle and set it on fire and move on with Jesus. That's what I would have thought. It turns out that's not what happens because we're all a little bit allergic to grace because I could do the same thing today, right? My heart can yell crucify truth whenever it's telling me that I'm not good enough because it's just not the narrative I want to hear. I want an alternative narrative. I want a truth that tells me that my best is good enough that says, well done, Luke. Not because of anything Jesus did, because of stuff I'm doing. I want a truth that does not call my best into question. I want a truth that does not correct me. These are the truths that I want. One that lets me be better than others because I produce more and live a cleaner life. You know, as much as we massage truth and change it to meet our hungers, God has one truth with no alternatives, no propaganda and it is simply his gospel. It's the most firm truth human ears have ever heard. Consider, it's more true than gravity, color, air. It's all that stuff, everything created is gonna be rolled up someday. It is above even those things. Even above, I remember coming up through the sciences in college and learning about the immutable thermodynamic laws, right? The four of them. I think there's four now. So remember learning about those, and those bow to nothing. They're kind of the backbone framework and chassis to all physics and science. Even those things bow to a king. Truth. 
the most firm truth that you have ever heard above everything that feels absolute is that God loves mankind to the level of coming to mankind as perfect man Jesus. He came, he will come again. He came to rescue and redeem us from sin and from death. And he did this as a grace and a gift to you and me, not by any performance. There is nothing more true than this. Even Pilate himself could not escape this coming out of his mouth. Behold the king. As they hit him and as they slap him, behold the king. They had no idea. I mean, this passage is loaded with irony, right? Because he was the king. Not only that, I mean, think of the irony of a high priest judging him, the last high priest, the one who will replace and stop the priesthood, the ultimate priest, the uber priest in Jesus, a king and Pilate, a ruler judging him, sneering at him when he created the cosmos. It's interesting to me. You know, but the proof of God's love in the gospel is shown to you and me today by one more representation we haven't looked at, the last one, and that is Barabbas. Barabbas is one who found grace and mercy totally despite his sleazy life as a murderer and a rebel and a thief. Prisons were built for guys like this. Listen, the Pharisees were glad this guy was in prison. Like when this guy got arrested and they took all of his wanted posters off all the walls, they threw a party. They didn't really, really want Barabbas out of jail. It's not like he was one of them. He was a despicable man. He's not a man that really ever had grace come to him, nor did he give grace to other people. He was meant to stay in this prison, but he was let free, and he didn't ask for it, and he didn't deserve it, and he didn't expect it, but grace intruded without asking, and grace changed his situation. You know, it's love for a guy like Barabbas to be released from jail. But it's inconceivable love for Barabbas to be replaced in that jail cell. Jesus replaced him. He didn't just free him. Why do you think God put this detail into the narrative? I mean, there's certainly lots of people saying lots of things. Lots of people doing lots of things in this Passion Week. Why this being added in? right? I think it's to show you and me that we are Barabbas, released from a jail that we belong in. Being released, not because we have this incredible resume, (laughs) being released when we didn't expect it, when we don't deserve it, and not just being released out of of an affection for us, but replaced for a depth of affection for you and me. You know, when I read this, I like to pretend what the rest of Barabbas's story could have looked like. It cuts off right here in all four Gospels. But I wonder what, what he'd look like. Now, he doesn't become a Christian right here in any kind of parable that we have, or not parable, but Gospel that we have. But something had to have happened, or maybe not. You know, whenever the demoniac was freed and Legion was ex- exercised out of that demoniac, it says that he goes on to preach the Gospel. I wonder if it was like that for this guy. If he just was amazed at the grace of God on his life and maybe started planting churches or started a a prison ministry or something. But likely he just went back to either being a varsity criminal or a varsity Pharisee. That's probably likely what he was gonna do. I say that because that's what we do. That's the likely path that we take. I can go right back to sinning, 
where I can just start feeling rules out and following rules and doing better than everyone when it came to shame-based obedience and rules. I think in his story, if he does going back to a criminal and does a, another couple rebellions here and there and murder here, some thievery over there, I think we'd feel ripped off by that story because that's a cruddy end to a narrative. Or what if he signed up to be a Pharisee? Again, I don't know what that looked like. But if he became an intern Pharisee and he was on the upward angle and he was following all the rules better than everybody else, I think we'd equally feel ripped off by that, wouldn't we? That's likely what happened. It's more realistic because that's what happens in our lives. Christianity is seeing the Barabbas in us broken from a cell that we belong in. I mean, how... How does one become a Christian until they could look into the eyes of Barabbas and see themselves to some degree? You just have to. So if I were to take this news and apply it the best I can, how is it that you and I can take truth, the ugly truth, all truth, and look truth in the eye and embrace it? How do we do this? Even when truth corrects us, even when truth tells us we're wrong, Right, I will say that embracing truth is otherworldly. We see Jesus say a couple of times, my kingdom is not of this world, right? It's otherworldly. There is really not a book or a sermon that's gonna help you take truth and apply it to your life. You're gonna need the Holy Spirit to do this. This is Holy Spirit work. To believe truth is Holy Spirit work. That's why when you became a Christian for the very first time, when you believed and trusted in truth for the first time, you did that by God's power in the Holy Spirit. You didn't just become brilliant all of a sudden, right? That's called regeneration, where your heart of stone was plucked out, heart of flesh put in. You could feel for the first time, see the blood on your hands for the first time, see the beauty of God for the first time, and believe for the first time. That was all work and weight lifted by the Holy Spirit. Why would it be any different now? To believe the truth. It is otherworldly. And when the truth corrects us, we need the Holy Spirit to help us be trained by it and to grow by it. I'm going to read you a passage. You don't need to turn there. Stay where you're at, but it will be on the screen. It's Hebrews 12. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Reproved just means to be reproofed to be reminded of the truth, to have the truth brought to you again in a more forceful manner so that you are reproved. That's all it means. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? But they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. You see, discipline doesn't come unless we apprehend the truth. Truth is what corrects us. It's what corrects us. But sometimes it feels like sandpaper, doesn't it? It's very abrasive. When we really tackle it and we, could we just stop pretending that it's not talking to us, 
and we stop pretending that it's slippery and relative and situational. But when we really let it address our hearts, it could be abrasive. And like Pilate, we will know that it might have a price tag attached to it. And for that, friends, we need the Holy Spirit. We gotta have the Holy Spirit for this. And I think there's been a lot of people in this room that maybe have had some tough things, some difficult decisions to make, and they keep getting deferred. And truth keeps getting demoted to being something that's more shape-shifting, not rigid. You might have strong feelings that what you're doing is wrong, but you have a strong desire to make an exception clause that adapts truth and makes it a narrative that you can live with, right? You need otherworldly help because your situation's not gonna get any easier. I mean, you can see Pilate's doing the best he can to offload this, is he not? It's not happening. You can't offload it, it keeps coming back, it keeps coming back. You need the Holy Spirit to give you courage, to approach whatever it is. I think not only can be, uh, not only can applying truth to self be very difficult, I think applying truth to others can maybe be just as difficult as we bring truth that might correct somebody that we love, somebody in community, right? I think we equally need the Holy Spirit to do this. When you see those that you are in community with in sin, and if they're in sin, friends, that means that they're in need. When you see that and you bring the truth of the Bible to their gospel, a quick warning is, is that they will try to convince you that their narrative is different, that their situation is actually different, that what they're doing is okay because of the situation that they're in and that you just don't understand. That's gonna be the line. It's gonna sound a lot like God knows my heart, number one, and God knows my trials, number two, so God is therefore okay with it, right? That's what you're gonna hear. This is just what we call church discipline, by the way. Church discipline has been made to be um, a paddle of one size for some reason in the church. But church discipline is just simply me loving someone so that when they are in sin, and I see that need and that pain, that I bring the truth, not my opinion, not what annoys me, but I bring the truth, and I say, this is what the Bible is, it says to your situation, right? Why do I do that? It's reproval. I'm bringing the truth to them for their life and their freedom because the truth does set us free, right? And this isn't something that the church in America invented. Look at Matthew 18, verse 15. I'm just gonna read one or two sentences. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence or two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. What, what is going on? It feels like it's escalating. It is, because there's weight being added to the truth that is being presented, right? See, when we hear in America, we, we consider church discipline, we usually think it's a transaction that occurs between church leadership and the people right? It's something handed down. Church discipline should be happening among the ranks of who God's people are, the congregation, before it ever even comes up to the leadership. Church discipline is just simply me saying, hey, I've watched how you've treated your wife, or I've noticed you've been on super edge, or I've noticed that you have one and a half more beers than probably your weight should allow, you know? That is what church discipline looks like, and then we bring the truth, and then we let them wrestle with it. That's all it is. It could be hard though. 
Listen, if anything needs courage, this needs courage, does it not? I mean, unless you just love that kind of thing, and I doubt you do, this needs the Holy Spirit. But I will tell you, this is what separates a functional church from a petting zoo, where we all just stroke each other and say how great we're doing, and if that's true for you, that's great, but this is gonna be true for me, and that's great too, because truth is situational. What is truth anyway? But when truth is heralded and we love each other, then we're not gonna have any problem addressing each other in a loving way with it, are we? Right. This is tough, because whenever we do apply the truth to those around us that we love, doesn't not it make you feel a little bit like you're standing up above them and judging them? It puts you in a grody position sometimes. Like here, I'm about to tell them how it is. This is what Matthew says. This is what the Apostle Paul says. And we know deep in our heart, we struggle with the same thing a little bit, right? See, that backs you off. What it's meant to do is bring you to humility. Hey, listen, I've watched how you have run your mouth, right? This is what the Bible says on how we handle our speech. But listen, I get it, (laughs) you know? I've been there. I actually struggle with the same thing. It's something that I think we both could grow from. But man, I just love you. And I'm watching you sink a little bit. And I just felt like God was telling me I needed to talk to you about this. Friends, that happens by the Holy Spirit when it's done well. Because it takes a lot of courage. You're not standing above them. You're coming alongside them. Anyway, I'm off script. I'll come back. But just to say, we need the Holy Spirit to apply it to ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to apply it to each other. But we also need the Holy Spirit to carry this truth to this city. Because every single person that is far from Jesus is a mixture of a Barabbas, a Pilate, and a religious professional all wrapped up in one. I know that because I was one, right? And so are you. We play with the truth. We perform in front of others and in front of God And we are wicked to the very core before God reaches us and totally changes us. I will say my one application is as gospel heralds, we are not telling the whole truth if we don't emphasize grace above works. Super important, okay? Grace has to be emphasized above works or you're not preaching the gospel. Here's a quote that's been very helpful for me. I've heard it said many different ways and applied to different men, but I found this guy saying it as a quote is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, if ever you are putting the gospel to another person, which is what we call evangelism or missional living, you've got a very good test whether you are preaching the gospel in the right way. If your presentation of the gospel does not expose it to the charge of antinomianism, you are probably not putting it correctly. That's a nerd word. All antinomianism means is no law. What that means is is if you start preaching the gospel to people and an onlooker comes or anyone comes and says, listen, it feels like you're just being super sloppy with your grace, that you're literally telling people that their behavior doesn't matter. Unless you have people at least feeling like that, you're not even preaching the gospel right. Those charges should be a bit natural. Because guess how long it takes to turn a Barabbas into a Pharisee? No time at all. Zero seconds. Zero seconds until you're bust out of a joint and you come out and you think, oh gosh, I gotta get back there and start scrubbing that same prison cell so that the guards are amazed by my performance or so that the prison guard looks at my performance and says, well done, you've actually deserved this reprieve and we're actually glad to have you out because look at how you've changed. It doesn't take any time. 
That's why Jesus says in Matthew, you guys, you Pharisees, you will spend all kinds of time and money and go through all kinds of trouble going all over the world to make another Pharisee, and you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. It doesn't take any time. It's super easy. It's a natural inclination in us to perform. When It's even worse in the South. It's even worse in the South. So whenever you preach the gospel, bring it in such a way that they understand that grace is there. And what grace says is favor has come despite your performance, your best and your worst, despite it all, despite you. You didn't deserve it. You were Barabbas, sitting there, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for your execution. And all of a sudden, the jail door just opens. You didn't expect it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't ask. It just happened. That's grace. If you don't preach that, you're not preaching the gospel. You could be accused of a lot of things, but it's not going to be great gospel telling. All right, I'm off script again. Let's do this. Go ahead and stand with me, and we will land. I think there, I want to talk to the three primary groups. I do think that there are Barabbas type people in here. And just the idea of walking out of a cell and embracing a new king seems a bit too easy, doesn't it? If you're far from God, there's got to be a little bit that in you that says, there's got to be more to it than that. That's natural to feel that. It's natural to feel that, right? But again, walking back into that cell and scrubbing it, that's just crazy. Your resume never even brought the jailbreak. That was from a king's hands. So why work your tail off now to justify that that should have happened? I agree with Pilate. Behold your king. Behold your king. His resume broke you free. His work cleans you. His life, death, and life brought you new life. You don't have to be a performance artist. I think the pilots in the room, something you carried in here with you, something maybe it's been coming up in your devotional times if you have them, maybe just as you're driving around, you're reminded of something, something that you feel like is in your life that if you could just get rid of, you would be living a totally different life, but you can't decide to get rid of it. And you've started to build a narrative and coddle that thing. Whatever that sin is that you're depending on, you've started to coddle it, right? Building a, a storyline, a narrative with different facts that you have a palate for, that you can tolerate. Friends, listen, you need to beg the Holy Spirit today. Beg the Holy Spirit to give you the courage to change to let God be king in your life. You cannot offload that. Ask Pilate how that worked for him. You cannot. And then I know that there are those who are religious. And I just have to say, your works are a statement of unbelief. Whenever we work to impress God, that is not just an okay neutral thing. That is actually saying, God, your work for me was insufficient. I must add to it. It's a cry of unbelief. Friends, you too need the Holy Spirit. We, I can do that. We need the Holy Spirit to say, I work and I behave and I perform because I love Jesus and I can't get enough of Jesus, but not because it's going to get me anything that I don't already have. That has to be the cry of our heart, and that can't happen without the Holy Ghost either. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being so good to us. I thank you for characters like Barabbas. I thank you for characters like Pilate. They don't get a lot of airtime, but when I do see them, I see myself so clearly, 
And I'm so thankful that you give us these moments of just kind of looking a little bit more deeply in a mirror. So, Father, I pray for the broken hearts that are in here, broken by whatever sin that they're in, broken by their best performance that's not cutting it. And, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be manifest in their life today, that you would come and that you would change our hearts you would readdress our posture. So Lord, that courage that we need to follow you, real truth, no alternatives, no propaganda. And Lord, that the Holy Spirit would bring us courage to lay down our works and our spit and our polish in order to impress you, but that we would relax and rest and enjoy you with a life one that yeah, we would behave and we would perform, but it wouldn't get us any more love. We're just doing it because we've experienced your love so beautifully. And when we fail, you love us no less. You're so sweet to us and we're so thankful. So Lord, as we take communion in families and in small groups while the music's going and as we worship and as we see the words and as we sing, Lord, that you would wrestle with us and bring the truth to us. It is not slippery, but yes, it can be abrasive. And help us tackle it. Help us apply it to our lives. So Lord, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. And listen, before we start, if you need someone to talk to, I'll be over here on the side. We have leaders in the, in the back corner over there. David is over there. If you'd love to talk to somebody and you need to talk to somebody, feel free to come and talk to us. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you.